Well, we made it. It's Christmas season, right? Finally. Um, if you're like me, uh, you've kind of been looking forward to it, but uh, I, was, I feel like it's been coming and been a little forced. Uh, I don't know if anybody went to Costco two months ago, but uh, I walked into Costco and saw Christmas trees like two weeks before uh, Halloween. I was like, oh, we're just bypassing Halloween and Thanksgiving and just jumping straight to Christmas. So um, and I know some of you love Christmas so much, you've been listening to Christmas music secretly for a few weeks now, and now you've gotten past Thanksgiving, you can actually turn it up, pull your headphones out, and like play it out loud. Um, so I, I love I love the season. Um, it's, it's a wonderful time for uh, us as a church and for uh, family. Um, it's always a time where I seem to have, we seem to have like parties all the time. Everybody, like, you know, you got your community group, you got your staff, you got your work parties, all of that. Um, and it's, it's a great time. But Advent itself, the Advent season, as Mike highlighted, is actually not meant to be this like, you know, 24-7, like, you know, celebration for a month leading up to the birth of Jesus. Advent is in the uh, historic Christian calendar is a period of waiting. It's, it's uh, the, the, we, we try to enter into that waiting period before the coming of the Messiah, even though obviously we're on the other side. Um, but then also we wait for this world to, um, to experience the fullness of Christ's kingdom. And so we feel the weight of this present darkness that we live in. We look forward to, this period's meant to, for us to look forward to the second coming of Christ, where we uh, are waiting for peace to come in, for injustice to end, for, um, for Christ to reign, for wars to end, for all of the um, brokenness and darkness to be um, enveloped by Christ in his light. Theologian Fleming Rutledge said, Advent begins in the dark. And that's, the, that's where we are today in the book of Isaiah. I know this is a passage that many, um, many Christmas songs are based on. You've heard sermons about this. Uh, you might be thinking of Handel's Messiah with this, um, which I will not sing. But uh, <laughs> there are lots of references in your mind to this material. Um, but the truth is, when Isaiah wrote this, it was a very dark moment in Israel's history um, they were, uh, it was around 730 BC and, uh, King Ahaz, not a great King in Israel's history, but, uh, was, was waiting. There was a, uh, an army, the Assyrian army was basically at the doorstep of Jerusalem and, and about to, to take the city. And he, he, uh, Isaiah came in and said, you know, don't worry, like God's got this. And Ahaz is trying to figure out, do I make, uh, do I make alliances with other countries to try to fight Assyria back? And, and Isaiah says, don't make alliances don't worry about it. God's got this. Uh, God's going to give you a sign. Now, you would think that Ahaz would say, sweet, uh, a good sign would be awesome, be helpful. But Ahaz doesn't because he's not a good king. Um, He's like, well, I don't know. Basically, the best we can tell the way it's written, Ahaz was like, not sure I want a sign because if I get a sign, that means I have to obey it. So I'd really rather just say, no, no, hold off, please, no signs. Um, God says, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. Um, and that's what Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then the Isaiah 9, which was read a few moments ago, is a more full uh, explanation of that sign and that prophecy. And 
what we need to understand is sort of as we, as we go through, um, we're looking at Isaiah 9 in particular, verse 6 for the next uh, few weeks. But as we look at Isaiah, we look at this context of prophecy, we have to look at it through the lens of, of an immediate fulfillment and ultimate fulfillment. That's often how prophecies worked in the Old Testament. There was an immediate temporary uh, fulfillment and then that pointed to an ultimate fulfillment. So you can imagine sort of Maybe you stood near a, a, like a small hill or small mountain, but then off in the distance, you could see like a, a much larger significant mountain. And there's a contrast, right? You see the small one up close, but then the real one, the one that's substantial is behind it. Um, and that's the picture of Old Testament prophecies here. So we, we don't know this son that was born, but, but that's how prophecies worked. And there's theories about who that might have been. Um, But God brought about a a son in the immediate to point ultimately to the future um, uh, coming of Jesus. The son who is prophesied here would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. Just those four titles, which we're going to look at sequentially over the next few weeks, are are enough to, to, to go, oh my gosh, who is this, right? Like these are not titles that are just thrown around or described just normal people. These are, these are extravagant. These are significant. These are, um, deity level, uh, prophecies. And so there's no doubt that in Isaiah's time, they read that and they were like, that sounds super awesome. Maybe he's just exaggerating a lot, right? (laughs) But because there's no one, no one has been in Israel's history that could fulfill those. And indeed, no one would ultimately fulfill those until Christ came. But that points to the fact that this, uh, what Jesus was doing was actually more significant than the immediate temporary fulfillment. And so I, I think one of the things we think about uh, when we read something like this or these titles is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We think, how does, okay, those are wonderful. Those are amazing. That's high and lofty, but how does that help me today? Like I've, I'm, I'm dealing with struggles. I'm dealing with loneliness. I'm dealing with relational issues. I'm dealing with stress at work. I'm dealing, you know, that's nice and good and ultimate fulfillment in the kingdom. But, but what about here and now? And what you need to understand is that Jesus didn't simply come to, to alleviate like evil and suffering in the immediate. He, he came to, uh, to, to change the system, if you will. Uh, I like the way J.D. Greer put it. He said, uh, we cry out to be delivered from bad health. God wants to deliver us from the curse of death that causes bad health. We cry out to be delivered from injustice and broken relationship. God wants to deliver us from the sin and selfishness that breaks those relationships. We cry out for victory in battle. God promised a Messiah who takes away the hatred that drives us into battle. So Jesus didn't come to give you a better Christmas season. Sorry. <laughs> I hate to rain on. I love Christmas. You know, please don't, don't take that to ruin. I feel like I'm ruining your Christmas. But, you know, we, we, we're so influ- influenced by this the, kind of the sentimentality of Christmas. Um, but the truth is sometimes... Christmas isn't what we want. Sometimes all you get is the jelly of the month club. Sometimes the Red Rider BB gun never comes. Sometimes the Grinch destroys all the gifts. Sometimes you find out your dad, who you so desperately want to have a relationship with, just wants to selfishly keep publishing books and ignoring you. Sometimes Bedford Falls just becomes Pottersville, right? I'm sorry if the, you missed all of those. Um, you should watch some Christmas movies. Uh, that's your homework. Uh, <laughs> but all of the Christmas movies, none of them end like, and life was horrible. 
by, you know, the end. Like, why? Because we love that redemptive story. So we take that to mean that we can have that story now, right? We think that we're going to have that family Christmas this year that we've always wanted, that mom and dad who we've been alienated for years from is going to somehow, they're going to call on Christmas Eve and say, we want to see you. We will pay a million dollars to fly you here or to come see you. And we just want to make things right. You know, we, we, we long for that. And, and I would argue, don't ever let that become jaded, right? Because I think that the reason that we do that is it points to the hope that we have in the gospel, right? It's the, the, the hope that we have that things would get better is ultimately meant to point to the hope we have in Jesus. Advent is about waiting. It isn't about hopelessness or pointlessness. Um, it's waiting with anticipation for this great news of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father. So we're looking at wonderful counselor today, and I want to uh, look at this by asking two questions. What makes a wonderful counselor, and then how should we respond to the wonderful counselor? So what makes a wonderful counselor? Well, the, the word wonderful counselor in the Hebrew, two words. Uh, the first one means miraculous, marvelous, or beyond understanding. And it has, has tones of deity um, in it. It it's be, it's, means beyond words. It, this doesn't mean really good, right? So when, when you read wonderful, and, and uh, maybe you've described your counselor that way, you're like, uh, you tell someone, you're like, I have found a wonderful counselor, right? <laughs> and what do you mean? You mean really good, right? Really skilled. That's not what this word means. The word here really means like miraculous, like things that are supernatural, inexplainable, right? And maybe you have found that counselor, and if you do, you should probably tell us all uh, <laughs> who that is. But, uh, but there's only one miraculous supernatural, incomprehensible counselor. Um, and and the, the word counselor here also is the, the, the second word is, is important to understand in context. It means to advise, instruct, or to guide, and it's always from a position of authority. So we wouldn't, while the word counselor we use in our culture captures some of this idea, it doesn't capture it by any real stretch because we, we misunderstand. That word is very limited. Um, in our day, we have uh, psychic counselors, uh, psychiatrists, financial counselors, life coaches, talk show hosts, self-help books, and more. And all these things counsel us, right? We have a good friend who gives us good counsel. But that's not what's happening here. This is a, someone from a position of authority giving truly wise, insightful uh, counsel that you can't get elsewhere. So King Solomon is described as one who gave counsel or as a counselor. So he was king. People would come from far around to come to him and listen to him and to hear him. And so this wasn't um, your counselor who sits across from you when you meet with them. Um, two things uh, you, want in a, you want in a counselor, uh, someone who cares, that is someone who empathizes, sympathizes, uh, someone who connects with you. Um, and then secondly, someone who has real wisdom and insight to help you. So you want someone who cares, but also somebody who's capable. And those two things are, don't necessarily go together. You understand that, right? We have people who care for us, but are not necessarily capable. And then we have people who are very capable, but don't care. And neither one of those is enough. So um, someone who is caring. Jesus is a wonderful counselor who truly cares for us. The author of Hebrew pictures this in such a beautiful way in Hebrews 4, um, verses 
14 through 16. He says, then, when, uh, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This word sympathy here, or sympathize, um, is a compound word in the Greek meaning to suffer and together. So to sympathize is to suffer together with someone else. It's close to, to the word empathy uh, in, our, in the English language. And so Jesus cares for you, sympathizes with you in such a way that he suffers together with you. Um, this, is, this is a different kind of God, right? The Plato's God was an impersonal, impersonal force, this immovable mover who was, who was largely indifferent to people, indifferent to uh, relationships, indifferent to emotions and suffering. But Jesus is a wonderful counselor who's deeply moved. I don't, I don't know if you stop and think about it this way. I think about Jesus, think about Jesus having feelings, and I struggle sometimes to think he has feelings like I do. I mean, he, sure, he's joyful, sure, he's, um, you know, uh, winsome, sure, he's uh, caring, but not, not the way that I am, or in the sense of, like, just, you know, we feel. When you feel something deep down, it, like, inhabits your bones, right? It, it, that's why we talk about, it, I feel it in my guts, right, or my heart. We're, we, we don't feel it in our intestines. I mean, maybe you do, but that, that you should probably get that checked out. Um, but we're say, what we're saying is it's deep inside of us, right, when we feel that kind of care or concern or suffering. And Jesus is saying, I feel that. I sympathize. I suffer together with you. He came into this world and lived a life and suffered as we did. Jesus, you know, it's interesting because professional counselors, and, and this is important, have to keep their distance. They, they, they can't get highly emotionally involved with a client. It, it makes, it, 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 uh, it removes their, their objectivity, right? It, it, and it, it's very unprofessional to get highly emotionally involved with your, with your client. And, and in fact, uh, a lot of them have to be very careful. Like they have firm boundaries. Like I see you at this time. I don't see you otherwise, right? I, this, is the, this is the slot you have. And then I move on to the other. And at the end of the day, I'm going to close my laptop with all my notes and I'm going to leave that at work and I'm going home, right? And they have to disconnect. Not saying anything's wrong with it. I think it's essential. But Jesus is not that counselor. Jesus isn't like, well, I'm gonna close my laptop for today. Hope you're doing all right, you know? Like, our session's over. I will see you next week, you know? <laughs> no, Jesus is the wonderful counselor who sympathizes with you wherever you are. When you're laying in bed at night and you cannot fall asleep, the wonderful counselor is aware of that. He feels for you, right? When you're facing that, that deadline at work that you don't know how you're going to finish, like Jesus is there. And I think sometimes we, 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 we think not, you know, we know better if you're a Christian, you know he doesn't hang out here all week long waiting for us to come on Sundays, right? You know that. You know he's not just sitting where your Bible is at home or like, you know, he's not just in your phone when you're listening to worship music or a Christian podcast. Like, but he's available all the time. 
all of those hard moments, all those difficult moments, he enters them with you. Psalm 32 verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. You see, Jesus never treats us like clients. He treats us like children. Like a parent who delights in their child. And when your kid, if, you're not, if you are a parent, when your kid is hurting, like you, you don't say, that's oh, really terrible. So sorry for you. Like, no, your kid's upset. What do you do? You get in the floor with them. Like you're, you get down on their level. You, you enter that suffering as much as you can. Um, you know, when they come home from work from, or come home from school and somebody's bullied them, you know, or made hurt their feelings, you know, as a dad, I'm like, who, who are they? Who are their parents? I'm going to talk to them, you know. But, but the most important thing is not that I do that. The most important thing is that I get on their level and sympathize with them, that I enter that space of suffering with them. If, if, you're, if you're single, you, you've done that with a friend at some point, I'm sure friend who's gone through just an, a horrible tragedy or a terrible time in their life, and you just, you feel drawn in. Maybe you don't feel equipped to know what to say, but you feel drawn in because you care, and so you sympathize. Jesus never withdraws from our hurt. He never disconnects. In fact, 1 Peter 5, 7 says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus' care as the wonderful counselor does not waver. Even when you aren't thinking of him, he cares for you. Even when you are struggling with sin, he cares for you. Even when you skip prayer and Bible reading for a week, he still cares for you. And he longs for you to cast all your cares on him because your hurt, your anxieties, your fears, your struggles, they touch his heart. He sympathizes. And I argue this, if you don't know that the wonderful counselor cares, then you won't run to the wonderful counselor when you need him. And I think sometimes, I'll, I'll just be honest, I think sometimes we, we wait until the wheels are literally falling off the vehicle, right? To go, well, I guess I should pray, right? <laughs> I, guess, I guess, yeah, Jesus is here. I could talk to him now, you know? Instead of all along the way, right? Honestly, it's, I, I've, I've had people go, you know, and, and I understand what they're saying. They're like, well, you know, I just, I just don't want to bother God. It's, it's just not a huge thing in my life. It's just a little something I'm dealing with. And I'm like, Somebody said to, this, to me a long time ago, I think I actually said those words, and somebody said something to me I'll never forget. They said, what in your life is big to, to God, right? Like, what, what is it that you have that he's like, oh, man, wow, I'm glad you brought this to me. You know, like, this is, this is serious. I'm going to have to call in the Spirit and the Son. We'll, we'll collaborate on this, you know? <laughs> like, there is nothing in your life that's big to God, which means what? There's nothing also so small that God doesn't care. So we need to stop waiting until the wheels are falling off to actually consult the counselor. If you get up tomorrow morning and you feel like garbage, you're just tired, you're having a rough day, he cares. He had rough days. He was tired. We know this because he took naps, right? <laughs> he just got tired and, and his schedule was very busy too, you know? healing and preaching and teaching and traveling all the time. I mean, yeah, but he didn't even have one of these little scooters to ride on. He walked everywhere. And so you know he was physically tired and emotionally tired and even, yes, spiritually tired from caring for people, serving people, healing people all day long. And so he's sympathetic. He understands. Hebrews 4.15 um, 
He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. He can care for us because he's tempted. He was tempted. He was tempted to get drunk. He was tempted to blow up at his coworker. He was tempted to give in to lust. He, would te- he was tempted to lie. He was tempted to live for the approval of others. He was tempted to believe he was all alone. He was tempted to g- doubt God's plan and purpose for him. He was tempted to give in to what was easy and expedient over what was holy and godly. Anybody experience temptations like that? <laughs> all of us? Yes, all of the time. <laughs> and so the wonderful counselor is not... Um, unaware and uncaring in those areas. He's able to sympathize. He was rejected by those who should have loved him. He was betrayed by those who said they did love him. Jesus cares for you. He cares for you in whatever you're going through, whether it's small or big. Secondly, Jesus is someone who is capable. Well, good as a counselor who's super caring, but not capable. (laughs) I mean, yeah, we all love to have somebody who like just cares, right? Maybe you have that friend, you know, when you're going through a hard time, you're going to call them and they're going to say, oh man, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, wow, that sounds terrible. But you just know good and well, you're not going to get good advice from them. They don't have the wisdom, the maturity, the life experience, or maybe the intelligence to offer you anything that's super helpful, but it's nice to know that they care, right? <laughs> But what we ultimately need, someone who is caring and capable. (laughs) Human beings are always trying to um, look more qualified and capable than we are. I read a funny post online recently. (laughs) Um, Somebody asked, I think they have actually asked ChatGBT and uh, some other sources online, uh, Quora and others. How can I add a, I changed a light bulb on my resume. You hear that? How can I add, I changed a light bulb to my resume? These are the answers I saw. Proactively implemented concrete and cost-effective solutions that brought both horizontal and vertical impact to the workplace by raising visibility for all colleagues, (laughs) illuminating the office, and fostering a more inclusive working environment. (laughs) And another one I saw, single-handedly managed the successful upgrade and deployment of a new environmental illumination system with zero cost overruns and zero safety incidents. Some of you who uh, hire people, you've seen stuff like this on their resume, and you're like, what does this mean? (laughs) We, and and honestly, all of us, I'm not saying we lie or embellish like that, but we all want, when you're applying for a job or you're, 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 you know, trying to impress someone, you want to make your qualifications look as good as they can be, right? You're, you want to frame yourself out. Um, Jesus is unique. And that the other side of his supreme care and love for people is his supreme capability as a counselor. But he doesn't meet our traditional check marks of a counselor. Um, I got recently connected with a seminary colleague. I'll be, I'll be honest, I, I, um, I've, I've worked, I think I've taught adjuncts as an adjunct professor at five schools now. So I meet, I meet a lot of professors, connect with a lot of professors. And I enjoy, I enjoy meeting new 
people. I, I got uh, sent this, uh, this woman's uh, CV, and I just scanned it. And I, my, my jaw began to drop, and then it dropped more, and then it was on the floor listening to her. Uh, maybe the most qualified, um, maybe one of the top church planning scholars in the country. Started with her double major in English and French, and then she, where she was valedictorian, she master's in English, master's of divinity, earned a master's of studies in theology and New Testament, earned a master of theology and applied theology at Oxford, earned a PhD at the University of Aberdeen focusing on the history of church planting. Like I said, maybe one of the single most qualified like church planning scholars in the country. And I was like, I was reading this. I was like, man, I, and I've really enjoyed talking with her. And we might be tempted to look at Jesus through the grid. Like, you know, what are your qualifications, Jesus, uh, to, to offer counsel? He doesn't have them. You know, he has no formal education, didn't travel extensively. We don't even think he read a lot of books. Um, and he only had three years of experience. So, <laughs> but... He didn't qualify in our minds and our understanding as a counselor because it, the same reason that um, an earthworm trying to discern a human's qualifications for digging in the dirt would not make sense. <laughs> Instead, it's an entirely different category he's in. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Kind of important for a counselor. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. He's high, he highlight, the author highlights 10 things here. God, he's God's son. He's heir of all things. He's the creative agent of the world. He's the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe. He makes purification for sin. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's superior to the angel that has the most exalted name. I think he's a pretty good counselor. Pretty, pretty qualified to speak into your life and direct you and point you and care for you. And verse 1 is saying that God speaks to us now through him. I know a lot of people that like, oh, I just want to hear from God. I want to hear from God. I want to hear from God. You want to hear from Jesus because that's how God speaks. God's like, this is, uh, I haven't, I, I've spoken through my written word, but I, I don't like just throw thoughts out through the world. I give you a person, my son, Jesus. He's how I've spoken. He's how I've spoken definitively. And, it, and the fact, all of these characteristics point to the fact that he's available this morning. At this moment, right now, whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, whatever anxieties are hitting your mind. And he's, he's available at your lowest point this week. Seriously, we, you know, I say this, and I'm guilty of it as well. Sometimes just going, realize I'm kind of facing something or going through something hard. And what do I do? I open my phone, text a few people. Hey, just want to, you know, going through this, please pray for me. And I don't stop in that moment and realize that God is available. Jesus, the wonderful counselor, is available to me in that moment. And he wants to care for me. But oftentimes I'm putting my arm up to block him out. Listen, Jesus, the wonderful counselor, the, the amazing thing about him, is it, maybe this has happened to you in counseling. It's happened to me a few times uh, over the years, whether in a professional counseling setting or just sitting with someone who's very wise and giving counsel 
has this ever happened to you? You go in and you, you've got one perspective, right? You're like thinking about this and this thing seems to be such an issue. And then when you walk out, absolutely nothing has changed in that. You didn't get a phone call. There was no text message. There was no email that came in that said the problem is solved, right? Situation is fixed. But you walk out with a different perspective, right? Not that those things that were true when you walked in are no longer true. You just have a different understanding of them. And that's what Jesus is often doing. He's pulling our perspective up out of an earthly, temporary, finite understanding. He's pulling us in close to himself. And he's saying, I got this. Look, let's just look at your past in the last 30 years of your life, right? Like, have I had that? I gotten you, gotten you this far, right? Yep. Okay, you think I can handle this? Yes, Jesus, you're right. And then, you know, and, and he helps us. His care and his capability meet us. So how should you respond to the wonderful counselor? That's our second question. How should you respond to the wonderful counselor? Just three ways. One, be honest. <laughs> just, just be honest. Be unashamed, unabashedly honest. You know that uh, a professional counselor can't really help you if you're not honest. If you're struggling with an addiction to alcohol over here and you go to your counselor and you're like, I've just got some struggles with relationships. You know, like, <laughs> they can't really help you because you're not acknowledging your struggle. You have to be on honest with him. Sometimes we struggle with the idea of coming to Jesus, the wonderful counselor, and being totally honest and transparent because we, we, we kind of feel like, maybe, maybe you've heard this whisper, how could you? You call yourself a Christian, right? If you haven't heard that one, you're probably better than I am. So I, like, well, you know, Christians don't really struggle with that. Or that's, that's the issue that, you know, isn't, isn't really a problem for real Christians, and what that is, is the, the, the enemy speaking lies, not the wonderful counselor speaking truth. Because the wonderful counselor, here's the clue, already knew about that thing. And he has already done something about it. It's called the cross. He isn't surprised by your sin this week. He isn't surprised by your doubts this week. He isn't surprised by that place you find yourself on Wednesday afternoon or Friday morning or whatever. He knows where you'll be. And so he invites you to come. We're, but we, we're often like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? We're, we just found, we just realized God's coming. Like, he, oh, oh, uh, so I got to cover up. I'm going to go make some fig leaves and try to, try to cover up this sin, right? Instead of letting him cover it, giving it to him. Hebrews 4 says we're to come to the throne of grace boldly that we might receive help in time of need. Not that we might come before the throne of grace and receive some condemnation, right? Or let us come before the throne of grace and get our hand slapped, right? Or let us come to the throne of grace and hear, I told you so. You knew better, right? No, our parents told us that, right? <laughs> but, but Jesus never will say that to you. You can come honestly before him. Old 
pastor theologian said it this way, Arthur Pink. He said, come as you are, say what you feel, ask what you need. Confess your sins, your fears, your wandering thoughts and affections. Come to the wonderful counselor. Not to push the analogy, but sit on his couch. <laughs> Lay back and be honest. Secondly, be humble. I know you're like, well, how could I be hum honest and humble? You can be honest without being humble. It's not enough just to be honest. The alcoholic can be honest and say, I have a problem. But they're not humble enough to be dependent on God and others to, to, to overcome it. Jesus isn't simply looking for you to be authentic. I love that, that my, the previous generations, especially boomers and what were called the builders, and, you know, they, they, they all wore masks, you know, but now like, you know, from really Gen X millennials, it's like, we're authentic, right? We're just gonna be authentic with each other and authenticity and, and honesty. And so we just are real honest and in our community groups will like air, you know, hey, I just struggle with this. This is where I am. This is what's going on. And we just do that over and over and over and over again. And we ride around the cul-de-sac of honesty without ever being humble enough to be dependent on the wonderful counselor and those around us to help us. Can I, can I share a lesson from, from somebody who's been a Christian since my freshman year in college, so 30 plus years now? I would have saved myself so much trouble if I had stopped trying to white knuckle my own sanctification and just humbly and honestly acknowledge to God and to the people around me that I needed help, that I could not change. And that's an essential part of coming to the counselor, wonderful counselor. He loves us where we are, but he loves us too much to just leave us there. He wants to hear that humble cry. He wants, um, he wants you to be done with your self-improvement project. Again, I'm not, I'm not against life hacks. I'm not against uh, atomic habits or, you know, like the book. Like, it's great. Like, it's good stuff. But our, our culture can give you the illusion that if you do this and add these things and fix these things, you will be fixed. You know that's not true, right? There is more therapy and more self-help resources and research right now available to everyone than any time in human history, and yet we are in the middle of a mental health crisis. Depression, loneliness, anxiety, ravaging us. It's not the right information that we need. It's the right counselor that we need. You know, um, Jesus always seemed to have a place in his heart for those who, who were humble and, and threw themselves on his mercy or dependent on him. I, I love the story of the Pharisee or religious leader and the tax collector, Jesus tells. He says, you know, they went up to the temple to pray. These are two extremes. You know, this is the most, you know, very righteous, very religious leader and the tax collector, traitor, scum of the earth, you know, came and they went to the temple together and the Pharisee religious leader, he got up and said a really nice prayer. It was theologically correct. And, uh, and, and, you know, Lord, thank you that I'm not like that. And I'm not like that. And I'm not like that. And, you know, Lord, I'm grateful, you know, and the tax collector would not even go over to where he was praying. He was over in the corner, and he wouldn't even lift his head up. He was beating his chest and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's someone who's not just honest, but humble and crying out for Jesus 
I think many of us like the idea of the wonderful counselor. He meets us in our mess, but we don't like to be utterly dependent on him. We still think we ought to be able to change. We, we, you got your way through school. You got your way to your class, your program, whatever you were in. You got your job. You've earned that. You have worked hard. You're diligent. You're faithful. And just be, but the problem is just because you've been able to do one thing well, you think that that can equate your, to your entire life and your heart. Listen, there are plenty of non-Christians who succeed at discipline. That does not make them whole people. That does not mean they have peace and joy and, and, and love in their heart. That only comes from the wonderful counselor. Many of you uh, may have seen that Matthew Perry, the Friends actor, passed away um, recently. Kind of a sad, sad day uh, for those of us that uh, grew up on, on Friends. Um, he struggled deeply with addiction. Interestingly enough, his, there was an experience in his lifetime with God that I think pictures this this utter cry, um, and, I, and I pray that this was a genuine conversion experience for him, but this is what he wrote in his memoir. He said he cried out to God. He said, God, please help me, I whispered. Show me that you were here. I started to cry. I mean, really started to cry, that shoulder-shaking kind of uncontrollable weeping. I wasn't crying because I was sad. I was crying because for the first time in my life, I felt okay. I felt safe. I felt taken care of. Decades of struggling with God and wrestling with life and sadness, all was being washed away like a river of pain going into oblivion. I'd been in the presence of God. I was sure, certain of it. And this time I had prayed for the right thing, help. Being humble means you're beyond confessing your sins and being honest with God. You're actually dependent on the wonderful counselor to help you. And the final what I want us to want to land on is that uh, we respond by being obedient. How many of you have received good counsel in your lifetime and totally ignored it? <laughs> just let it go, right? Like just thank you. I really appreciate you sharing with me that. You know, that's very kind of you to tell me that, and you just know in the back of your mind, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> and so, like. How, how horrible is it that we humble ourselves before God? We, we, we're honest with him, but then he tells us, he speaks to us, you need to go make this relationship right, or you need to go work on this thing, or you need to go ask for help on this from this person, or you need to take this step with your life. You're, you've given yourself to work. Work is not your God, but it's an idol in your heart, and you need to change jobs or you need to cut back, or you need to, and we're like, that's real nice, Jesus, thank you, and we don't do it, right? We like him right up until he presses on us, but you cannot live the life God has for you and experience the hope, strength, and help you need as you walk through this dark world without obeying him. See, the, the problem is we look at Jesus as just a wonderful counselor, not the wonderful counselor, not God. And it's, it's, like, it's like forsaking the laws of physics, except you don't pay the price immediately. You know, if I, if I go up on top of this building and I'm absolutely convinced and defiant the laws of, of the laws of physics in my mind, it's kind of irrelevant how I feel about it, right? Whether I choose to obey the reality of gravity or not. The repercussions are immediate for that. The problem is the repercussions are immediate, are small, 
and temporary and ultimate as you would forsake the one who has given his life for you, the wonderful counselor. The truth is though, Jesus is not just the wonderful counselor, but the wonderful counsel itself. I was studying this week and 1 Corinthians 1.24 came up. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He is the wisdom of God. He's not just the counselor. He is the counsel itself as he comes for you. And he teaches you to live the crucified life, the life killing that old part of you, that sin that wants to destroy you and teaching you to live in dependence on him for this new kingdom, new earth that's coming where everything that you long to end right now, all the suffering and sorrow and shame and guilt and fear and death and war and racism and injustice, that kingdom, and he's conforming you now as you walk with him. What would this Advent season look like if each of us really looked to Jesus as the wonderful counselor? I bet every person in this room can think of one area of your life right now that you need to bring to him. One area that you need to say, yeah, I I need to be honest, I need to be humble, and I need to be obedient, Jesus. This is an area I can't fix, I can't change, I I don't know what to do with. And I've been hanging on it or hiding it too long. What if we gave that to him this Advent season? I'm going to ask you to take a few moments and bow your heads uh, while Brandon plays and take a few moments and maybe just give that to Jesus. Ask him to enter that thing, that space. Be honest, humble, and then be willing to obey. Jesus, as we look to you as the wonderful counselor, would you come? Would you enter those dark spaces, those broken parts, those things that have been handicapping our walk with you, handicapping our ability to live for you, handicapping our love for you and for others, Would you enter that space and bring change, bring grace, bring truth, bring forgiveness, bring transformation, bring hope. For your great name's sake, for your glory, and for our good, we pray. Amen.